2: Here to help guide us is my guest, Dr. Sharon Malone. Welcome, Dr. Malone. Thank you for having me. Dr. Malone is the medical advisor for Alloy Women's Health. She brings decades of clinical and real-life experiences to her treatment of women in the menopausal transition and their post-reproductive years. Dr. Malone served women across Washington, D.C. in her almost 30 years as a practicing OBGYN. And through her work at Alloy, she wants to bring her expertise to women on a larger scale. She's hoping that we all make health decisions regarding our health and quality of life based on facts, not fear. So I always like to start before we dig in deeper to the topic by learning a little bit more about you. What was your aha moment that changed your trajectory into a career that's been focused on perimenopause and menopause?
1: You know, what's really interesting is that this career change that I've made, I'd say in the past two and a half years, is really in line with what I had been doing before. Because for the last 15 years or so of my private practice, I had stopped doing obstetrics. And as my patients aged and I aged, We sort of got into a different phase of life, and I did a lot of midlife care in addition to, you know, seeing younger and older patients. So it was a natural progression, not really an abrupt change one way or the other. It's so interesting because I'm a primary care provider,
2: and so it is very much all comers, but you do realize how much your personal experiences sort of shift your own interests in the work that you're doing. So before we dig in even further, let's just, so that we're all on the same
1: page, can you help us define what perimenopause is? Sure. Perimenopause is a little bit difficult for women to really put their finger on because it doesn't really signal, you know, it's not a bright line that signals when perimenopause begins. We almost back into the definition of perimenopause. We take the average age of menopause being about 51 and a half. And perimenopause, which is just the menopausal transition, can start anywhere from four to 10 years before you've had your last menstrual period. So perimenopause tends to sneak in before women are even thinking about menopause because it happens usually in your early to mid-40s. And the symptoms, I mean, my goodness, there are over 30 symptoms of perimenopause, not any of which that really need to go in any particular order. The first thing that women tend to experience is an irregularity of their menstrual cycle. And at times, it's almost imperceptible. The cycles will get a little closer together than what you're used to. Instead of a 28-day cycle, it might be 24, 25 days. That's usually the first harbinger of things to come. And from that, you can get any combination thereof of hot flashes, mood swings, brain fog, changes in libido, changes in weight, dry skin, itchy skin. I mean, the list goes on and on. And because they don't happen in any particular order, a lot of women experience them in isolation and they aren't really thinking about it under the big, you know, rubric of perimenopause. Thank you so
2: much for really helping us understand that it is something that we are still trying to figure out how exactly to define. And it's really our individual and collective experiences that
1: are going to help us figure out what that definition is. Right. But here's a good rule of thumb. Chances are, if you are in your early to mid-40s, just assume that you are in perimenopause because that transition has begun, whether you're having symptoms or not. And that's the, only, that's the other thing, too, is that because the range of symptoms varies from person to person, and some women are very, very, very bothered by this transition, and some have almost nothing. But so rather than waiting for a symptom to define when you are in the menopausal transition, a good rule of thumb is to look, generally speaking, at your age. And if you're in your mid-40s, you're in perimenopause.
2: That's great because I often feel like people are looking for a lab test or some objective finding to let them know that they're in perimenopause. And as a provider, a lot of times people will come in and say, well, I want my hormones checked. And... In terms of the evidence base for checking various hormones, can you talk us through what's the utility? Is there a utility? And when should we be
1: checking hormones, quote unquote? And what do people mean by that? There's very little utility in checking hormones in perimenopause. And the reason why it's not particularly helpful is because in perimenopause or this menopausal transition, your hormones fluctuate. From day to day, there's no orderly transition to, you know, what is going to be one day, what is going to be the next. It can be completely normal on Tuesday and out of whack by Saturday. So you have to look at it as just checking hormones is a particular point in time. And the results of the hormones don't typically change and stay changed until you've had your last menstrual period. The only time that I find checking hormones to be helpful is sometimes women have had hysterectomies. And whereas we use sometimes what's going on with the menstrual period to get a gauge of where we are, sometimes women don't know, or they have IUDs, or they've had procedures such as endometrial ablations where they don't get periods. And when they start to have symptoms, sometimes we will do a hormone test at that point just to get a sense of where they might be. But otherwise, not particularly helpful.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things that we learn in medical school is if you're going to test for something, it's got to change your management. And so it's, it's an unsatisfying answer in the clinic. We're normally sort of fluctuating in our cycles, even when we have stable cycles. So when things get irregular, it's really hard to know what to make of FSH or LH, which are two of the major hormones that we're checking for to see if you're postmenopausal.
1: Right. And and that's exactly right. Even for a woman who is premenopausal, just in a normal menstrual cycle, it changes throughout from week to week. And knowing what's normal and what's not normal, you have to know exactly where that person is in their menstrual cycle. So that's why I said when things get irregular, then you certainly have no idea where you are with things.
2: And I want to come back to an earlier point you made that symptoms are so individual. So how do you counsel and advise people to bring this concern or their questions into the exam room so that uh, we're not necessarily thinking about medicalizing this normal transition, but we're also not saying "Ah, it's just something you're going to have to deal with and you're going to have to power through. How should people be communicating their concerns to their doctors?
1: The way I always approach this in my practice is that when women got to be in their late 30s, early 40s, we sort of have a preemptive conversation. I explain to them what phase they're entering. We talk about the symptoms, but we go through the symptoms that you may or may not have. And I think it's very comforting for patients when they start to get into this phase and maybe your symptom is brain fog or sleeplessness. Just knowing what it is is somehow very comforting because we like to give patients anticipatory guidance such that they're not floundering around or thinking their weight gain requires that they go see an endocrinologist or I'm depressed or anxious and I should see a psychiatrist. You know, so it sets the tone, lays out what things can be and whether or not to do anything about those symptoms. And I think this is a very important point is whether or not you're bothered by them because there is no right answer for every person. But every person understands when they find that whatever symptoms they're experiencing, be they bleeding, be they depression, sleeplessness, hot flashes, you know when it is getting in the way of your day-to-day functioning. And if and when that happens, then that is really the time to go to your provider and to say, hey, I need to do something about this, because there's no real benefit in suffering for years before you seek help. Yeah.
2: And I think what's so interesting about what you said too is that we can give a general sense of the words that many people use. So hot flashes or heart racing, certain things that a lot of people will say. But then there are, in certain cultures, like I was talking about my mother who never used the term hot flash. She, we just did not understand what was going on with her. She would just run around the house thinking that she was about to faint or pass out. And I just remember vividly my brother and I chasing her from room to room because she was like, I'm going to pass out. I'm going to fall over. And she suffered in this way for many, many, many months, maybe years, um, where we just didn't know how to help her. And she didn't have that language to express or we didn't make that connection that
1: this may be related to the transition. And you know what? That is exactly right. We need to have language. We need to have the education about the process in and of itself and that way we know what to do but you're right we can't really seek help when we have no idea what we are experiencing or if you know the other side of this is sometimes women do complain and they complain mightily to their doctors and so we've got an education gap on both sides we need to educate women, but we also need to educate our doctors to say, you know, once you've ruled out heart issues, those palpitations can be very much a sign of perimenopause or going through this menopausal transition.
2: Yeah. And I love that you say that because I do I think that we have to take what our patients are telling us and we have to learn from that. I think sometimes we have that mentality and on the clinic side too, is just this is what it we've defined it now. It's perimenopause. I'm not worried because I don't think it's your cardiac system, or I don't think it's a stroke. And so, now I'm not worried about it. You can just power through it. We are really need to empower ourselves to realize there are ways that we can help the patients that are coming
1: in. And this is another reason why it's important to start this conversation well before you're in it, is because there are things that you can do on the front end to sort of help minimize some of the symptoms that you have during perimenopause. And that is just the notion that the healthier you are entering this process, in most cases, the better you're able to endure some of the symptoms that you have during menopause. And that sometimes helps. And so we'd start this because even if you're exercising and your weight control and all of this isn't really helping your symptoms, you are still doing good for this transition. You're going to be, you'll come out better on the other end of it either way. And then that way, you'll at least know, okay, I've exhausted the possibilities. And the one thing I don't want for people to think is that there is one solution to all of this. There are many solutions. Hormone therapy or using hormones to treat the symptoms of menopause is certainly a viable option for women who are bothered by their symptoms. And once you have tried, other things. And I'm, and when I say other things, I mean lifestyle things, you know, try to get regular bedtime, exercise, minimize alcohol intake. If you smoke, don't smoke. Because what we do know is that smokers have a more difficult time during menopause and have an earlier menopause than women who don't. So these are the lifestyle things that I'm talking about, not just, you know, oh, here's a supplement, here's a herb, try this, try that. Because okay. for the most part, They're not very effective at treating the symptoms of menopause. If you're going to have any effect whatsoever, let's start on the lifestyle front. First, see where you are. And again, there's no virtue in suffering. Once you've tried that and you're not getting the relief that you need, you should seek help and get relief of your symptoms.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a major point to make that a priority in terms of eating healthy is going to be beneficial across the board. Same thing with physical activity. Same thing with trying to prioritize sleep. And like you said, eliminating substances that are toxic to us, like cigarettes. And, and then really thinking about social connection because it's just so important. To have places where you can communicate this beyond just the doctor's office, because there's so many amazing tips and tricks and things that have worked or if not worked, at least normalize the experience.
1: I'm so glad that this conversation is happening more and more because we're able to help each other out as women. You know, it helps to talk to someone else about this who has perhaps gone through it. You know, and that's sometimes a double edged sword because what worked for someone may not Mm -hmm. work for you. Mm -hmm. And I think that the danger sometimes that we tend to do as women, we take our experience and we want to generalize it to everyone. And I don't think that anyone should feel ashamed or embarrassed or feel as if that if they do need help, that that's somehow a personal failing. It is not. Mm -hmm. It is just simply how your body is reacting to this hormonal fluctuation that is going on during the perimenopausal phase, and there will be another set of issues that happen once you are postmenopausal. And I say once you've had your last menstrual period and beyond. The perimenopausal phase, as I said, can last anywhere from four to 10 years. Once you've had your last menstrual period, that lasts forever. Mm -hmm. So there is another 30 or 40 years that are other issues that we have to take into account And what you may be at risk for that may make your options particular to you, not just what your friend did.
2: Yeah, it's so important for us to realize that there's no prize for trying to power through symptoms. In the same way, what we are very understanding of physical health, quote unquote, physical health conditions, where if you have an elevated blood pressure, I think it's very important that we try all the lifestyle modifications as part of the treatment plan. But if you need to be on a medication to keep that under control, then you need to be on a medication. I think we realize that for the most part. Very similar as we're going through these symptoms. So for you, it may be anxiety. For somebody else, it may be the hot flashes. For somebody else, it's the sleep disturbance. So it's really just sort of to your point very early on, which is what is interfering with your life and what is your goal for taking care of these symptoms? Is your goal to add medication earlier rather than later? Then talk to your healthcare provider about that. So I, I think that's such an important point.
1: And here's another point that I think everyone should keep in mind too is that just in terms of the timing, of menopause, And we say anything leading up to your last menstrual period starting from about 40 on is perimenopause. And then you have your last period in your menopausal. Now, when I say the average age of menopause, that means of having had your last period is 51. It can happen. That's just the average. You can have your last menstrual period when you're 45 or 44, which means, again, some of those symptoms have may have started in your 30s as opposed to starting in your 40s. Now, that's less frequent, thank goodness, but there's an important point I want for women to know who do have early menopause, and early menopause means having had your last period at 45, between the ages of 40 and 45, and why is that important? That's important because women who have early menopause are at increased risk for cardiovascular disease. They're at increased risk for Alzheimer's. They're at increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes, osteoporosis, because essentially you have at least five years, if not 10 years on some women of the amount of time that you're going to be estrogen deficient. And we know that for a fact that those are the things that women are at high risk. So if you have a family history of osteoporosis or cardiac disease or any of these things that we're really concerned about, and you have an early menopause, then getting treated sooner is better than getting treated later. And that's another, I think, a very important piece that has come out of not just the Women's Health Initiative, which was the large study that confused everything, but even from that, it does give us an idea that the timing of treatment matters. So if you are symptomatic, you should start therapy from the time you've had your last period, but no more than 10 years from the date of your last menstrual period or in most cases, below age 60, because that's when you're going to get the maximum benefit in terms of short-term and long-term health benefits from taking estrogen therapy. And for women who are very symptomatic, and the hot flash, we'll just use that as the example, the more severe your hot flashes, that is also an independent marker for increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, whether it's a hot flash itself It's the sleep disturbance that hot flashes tend to start. It doesn't really matter, but that we do know, you know, we know that there is, is, is an association between women who have severe hot flashes and impending cardiovascular disease. You have to look at what your risk factors are, what your goals are in terms of how you want to live. But if I have to say it again, I'll say it a thousand times. There's no virtue in suffering. You're not doing yourself any good by waiting and waiting and waiting. And in some cases, you may do yourself some harm because you may have sort of missed out on that window of opportunity, which is the optimum.
0: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows Enjoy the show. And now, back to our episode.
1: Time for starting hormone therapy.
2: Such a key point. And I was going to close up our discussion with your two or three most important bite-sized action items for anyone that's listening today. You've given us so much information. So what would you say are a few things
1: that folks listening should try to think about doing at the end of this episode? I think it's vitally important that everyone try to start as best you can position of health. That means getting regular exercise. That means trying to eliminate as many processed foods as you can from your diet, more fruits, more vegetables, and then getting sleep. And I think that we're coming around to this more and more and more about how important sleep is, not only for cognition, and mood, but also for decreasing our risk of cardiovascular disease. So those are the big three in terms of the lifestyle things you can do. And then beyond that, once you've done all you can do, and you need treatment, and you are still bothered by your symptoms, then that is the time when you should engage with your provider and explain to them these are the things that I am concerned about. This is affecting my quality of life. What is appropriate for me at this time. And I think that that is a conversation that we have got to have. And don't let your doctor discourage you because as I said before, we have doctors that have not really kept up with current research and they're still looking backwards. 20 years ago, that data from the Women's Health Initiative and women are afraid of breast cancer. If I had to say what's the number one reason why women avoid taking hormone therapy, even when they are very symptomatic, It is that fear of breast cancer. And I think the message that women should get is that the risk of breast cancer pales in comparison to the other cardiovascular events and the other issues and perhaps osteoporosis. So you need to put that in perspective. But the risk was never large, but a bit overplayed. So don't let that be the reason why you don't explore getting treatment for yourself. Thank you so much
2: for being with us today and for really helping us clarify some of the most confusing parts of perimenopause and the menopausal journey. We've talked with Dr. Sharon Malone about what we need to be doing to optimize health, regardless of where we are on our health journey, and then really thinking about how to advocate best for ourselves, given our individual risks, our individual concerns in the exam room with our health professional. And whether or not that means you're teaching your health professional something, uh, it's just an important piece for advocating for your own health. I wanna thank you again so much for for this conversation. You are welcome. Thank you for having me. To find out more information about Dr. Sharon Malone, visit www.myalloy.com or find Dr. Malone on Twitter and IG at S-M-A-L-O-N-E-M-D. Thank you for listening. This will conclude the episode. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please leave a comment and subscribe. Thank you.
1: We have a great show today, but first...